0: Brian Cookson is the former president of British Cycling, overseeing the incredible transformation in the sport from one Olympic gold medal in 76 years to 19 gold medals between 2000 and 2012, making it Team GB's most successful Olympic sport. Brian has also been the president of the UCI, the Union Cycliste Internationale, standing on a manifesto to tackle cycling's appalling doping crisis. But what first caught my eye and prompted me to invite Brian onto the podcast was his tree of the day thread of daily photos on Twitter. Anyone who rides bikes and likes trees is worth talking to in my book. And uh, speaking of books, today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Adventurous Inc, a monthly book club for outdoor lovers. Each month, the founder Tim who was a previous guest of this podcast back in episode 17, selects an outstanding book, including the odd one of mine. <laughs> um, and these books will help inspire you towards new adventures and reconnect you with the natural world. The Book Club is the culmination of Tim's five-year quest to establish a business with real purpose to help you live a life packed with adventure. Each month, Tim also curates an excellent email newsletter, which is nearly as good as mine. Um, Visit www.adventurousinc.co.uk to sign up for his emails, find out more about the book club and enter a monthly prize draw to win £50 worth of previous publications. Um, so you you were president of the UCI from 2013. So I know that Lance Armstrong was well before your time, but I, I do want to start with him because I think that's where he is where my world overlaps with your world and the world of, sort of professional cycling as a sport. Mm. it was It was Lance who got me into cycling as a sport. I remember watching him give uh, I'm sure you'll remember it as well, Jan Ulrich the look. Over mm. his shoulder, um, I was watching it in a packed cafe of Frenchmen, and that I just loved it. And then, as I was cycling around the world, I read his book for the first time, and I wore the yellow wristband. and He was a major, genuine inspiration to me in the years I cycled around the world from two thousand one to two thousand five. And he was a right. genuine inspiration and a major role model to me. But he was a cheat. And then mm. I remember cheering madly with Floyd Landis doing his lunatic. <laughs> Break away, and, and I, I love that, but he was a cheat. And then I loved Bradley Wiggins announcing that we <laughs> will now draw the raffle on the uh, Chanson Easy after <laughs> winning. Bradley. and I love that, mm. but a niggle in my head thinking, Oh, please, I really hope he's clean. So, mm. unfortunately, I've just lost all joy in the Tour de France uh, because I don't really trust it. So, please, can you bring back the joy for me?
1: Well, that's a big, uh, a big ask to start with, and um, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, you know I don't really like talking about Lance Armstrong, but it is impossible these days to have any sort of conversation with anybody outside of the sport without first having the Lance Armstrong discussion. Um, you know, as many writers have said recently, what Lance uh, hates most is being irrelevant, and frankly, he <laughs> is irrelevant these days. And I don't like to give him more more publicity. Um, you know, we, when I was um, uh, elected as UCI president, I guess in many ways it was because of the mishandling of the Lance Armstrong situation by my predecessors, and. One of the first things that I did was put in place, I um, think, called the Cycling Independent Reform Commission, which some people have kind of called a truth and reconciliation commission, but I don't like to call it that because I don't think that's comparable in any way with the South African uh, equivalent, you know. Um, and uh, what that did was analyze the history of doping in professional cycling. Um, looked at the problems and allegations around the Lance Armstrong era. But the most important bit was the bit that a lot of people overlooked, which was the 30-odd recommendations to put in place in terms of changes to the regulations and procedures to avoid those kind of scenarios happening again, or minimize the chance of them happening again. And we put all of those things into place. So, you know, I do like to think that we won't have the same sort of problems again in uh, professional cycling uh, or amateur cycling or any other form of cycling. But I think you have to bear that put that in the context of human nature. And there will always be people in any form of human activity who try and cheat, who try and take shortcuts, whether it's, you know, sport or accountancy or uh, the law or politics, there are always a percentage of people who will try um, and cheat. And It's up to the rest of us, I think, who care about the integrity of the particular activity that we're engaged in uh, to try and minimize the impacts of those. So, you know, I'm confident that what we did in my era, and I wasn't alone in that. There were lots of other people working, not just in preparation. In cycling, but also in, in other sports and in other fields, um, to put together the right sort of codes, the right sort of activities. And I do think we, you know, we lowered the radar or hired the bar, whichever way you want to uh, put it. But I think look, you have to admit you have to acknowledge that there will always be people who try and cheat. And the you know, the, the, the what's important is how you try to deal with those people. Uh, and I think one of the key elements that went wrong in the Lance Armstrong scenario was that they'd already had a massive um, uh, crisis in cycling the year before Lance came back from from cancer. Uh, and the feeling was that if they had another crisis, it would be the end of the Tour de France, the end of the sport, uh, in that, that sort of sense. And, um, you know, I think they... Uh, Well, the cert report, uh, the Independent Reform Commission report, uh, showed that they, um, in in effect, appeased Lance when uh, he had a positive test in uh, in that first nineteen ninety eight tour, I think it was, and uh, they, sorry, nineteen ninety nine, wasn't it? Uh, He uh, he had a positive doping test, and he was helped to get out of it, and you know had that not happened had they not appeased uh, um, someone who was cheating in that first year um then they wouldn't have had the same problems to build up over the the following 7 years but i think you know it was a beautiful story um you know, I'm I'm like you. I, I was seduced by the beauty of that story. A guy who comes back from this awful uh, illness uh, that was very far advanced. You know, it wasn't like as if they caught it in the early stages. It was pretty uh, grim in, in in the hospital, um, and it was a beautiful story. We all wanted to believe in it, but. Uh, I think the sad thing was that Lance uh, exploited that and uh, and used it as a shield to defend himself from allegations that were eventually proven to be true that, uh, that, he, that he cheated. And that's a sad thing, and it's still casting a shadow on sport. But what I will say is, you know, cycling is not the only uh, sport that's had those kind of problems. And, you know, that's not an excuse. Uh, you know, when I read now about other sports who are, uh, still in denial about the problem of doping in, in sport, then uh, that still makes me a little bit angry. But you know what, I don't really care about those sports. I care about our <laughs> sport, cycling. And I did my best over those four years at UCI to try and turn things around. And uh, I think I think we are in a better place now than we were certainly in those years. So do you think I should be getting myself excited again about next year's Tour de France? Yeah, I think so. Uh, This year's Tour de France, even if it is going to happen, uh, there's talk of it, uh, well, more than talk. The plan is that it's uh, delayed by a month or so. It will start at the end of August and run into September, pretty much on the route that was originally planned. You know, personally, um, I wish them well in the organization and the riders and the teams and everything. I think it's a big uh, challenge to make sure they don't have any um, uh, problems with the current uh, pandemic, and let's hope they don't. But, you know, uh, I think we're all missing uh, those of us who follow any sport have been missing it during the the pandemic. And let's hope that we can uh, bring it back to life. And I hope that nobody gets ill as a result of it. And uh, hopefully we don't have a resurgence either in France or or anywhere else as a result of these sports uh, coming back on stream.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. So you mentioned in your last answer that back in the late 90s, world cycling was in a bit of a crisis. And cycling, it's like, I find it hard to re- remember now that cycling didn't always used to be a big, glossy, mainstream kind of sport. You know, we think now about Bradley Wiggins and Chris Hoy and Laura Kenny, Victoria Pendleton, all these superstars, but that it wasn't always a successful or a household sport. So what was the state of British cycling like when you first... Got involved with it because I, I quite like us to think about that, so we can think yeah. about the good
1: thing of how cycling's been gone up. Well, I mean, you know, cycling was always much bigger in continental Europe than uh, than it was in in the UK and in the English speaking nations around the world. That was beginning to change during the 90s, and cycling was becoming more internationalized. And you know, the success of uh, Greg Lemond, for instance, the other American before Lance Armstrong, uh, then uh, Lance's teams, uh, and, and so on. They they were beginning to make a difference. But in Great Britain, we'd only ever had uh, occasional shooting stars. You know, Chris Boardman in the um, early 90s. Uh, from Barcelona Olympics onwards, before that we had um, guys like Robert Miller, who had been the king of the mountains in the Tour de France. Um, before that, even you know guys like Barry Hoban and Tom Simpson, who sadly died in the Tour de France in um, 1967. But they were they were not the products of a system of a structure because there wasn't the funding, um, there there wasn't the interest in the sport in the UK and so on. And one of the key elements that have been missing have been um, A base, headquarters, um, a velodrome, and uh, in the early nineties, lots of lobbying by one of my predecessors, Ian Emerson, as as president of British Cycling Federation, um, produced a velodrome at Manchester. And um, that there were lots and lots of problems in the first couple of years of that. It was. it was branded by the media as a white elephant and people, like, what is this crazy place? Uh, what's cycling anyway? It's hardly a sport that registers on the Olympic uh, uh, success uh, medal count and so on. Um, one won medal in 76 so years. One gold medal in 76 years in cycling, yeah. and that was Chris Boardman in, in, in 92 in, in Barcelona. And, I, and I was there. I was there. It was a fantastic experience to be yeah. there. I was one of the independent I was in official. front of the TV yeah yeah it was that amazing. Yeah, amazing. amazing yeah amazing yeah. yeah and um uh and so there's a bit of a crisis there was lots of um questions about it uh the, it, it more or less sent the organization the national federation into um close to bankruptcy and uh, lots of questions in parliament and all sorts of things like that so at an uh, annual general meeting the board were voting out on no confidence and you know uh Uh, 10 or 11 of us were voted in from the floor of the meeting and because I've been a bit a bit gobby and and knew a bit about (laughs) national level cycling politics because I've been involved for a while. earlier in my, my life um the rest of them said well you should be the, the chairman brian and I said, "Well, okay but for one year uh that's all had you, had you had you sort of considered this before the meeting or or did you oh, really just get literally lumped with it? literally two days before the meeting a, a <laughs> friend of mine called me up and said look we're both delegates to this meeting from from lancashire and lakeland region uh we need to do something about this we need to think about how we're going to take this forward because i think the the uh, the board are going to be thrown out so i said well you know okay i'll have a think about it and i came up with a solution which was that we'd suspend all the standing orders and we'd have a establish an emergency committee and uh, to take over the entire running of the federation and and we pushed and pushed and pushed on the day and other people from other regions had other inputs and uh, and we we got our way eventually and so those um 11 people were elected uh, one of them we made the chief executive pretty quickly and so he came off the board and went on to the staff and um, uh, yeah I mean lots of lots of good things happened around that time the national lottery was being uh, established and so we uh, we were able to demonstrate that we were now a viable uh, a sustainable organization with proper governance and so on, and capable of receiving substantial funds of lottery money. So we uh, we put a bid in, an initial bid in. We got enough money to recruit a performance director, Peter Keen, CBE, um, as he now is. And um, he established uh, the world-class performance plan for cycling, and we got more funding 2000 we went to the sydney olympics and uh got much better results including uh jason queely who won the kilometer time trial and in that took him uh, one minute uh 1.353 seconds or something like that and in that one minute and (laughs) 0.353 seconds that Transformed the sport, it transformed people's aspirations, it transformed the image of the Velodrome, the National Cycling Centre. People said, Ah, we get it now. It's not a white elephant, it's a metal factory. And that sort of phrase stuck as well. And um, so then we went on, and that allowed more funding to come in from the National Lottery. Uh, People took a lot more notice. We established programs to identify recruit young talent and put them into a conveyor belt of uh, of talent teams and, and structures development programs and so on 2004 in athens we got better results again gold medals for bradley wiggins and and others and then 2008 in beijing it was like a kind of gold rush we got eight gold medals and crazy amounts of success um and then repeated that again in 2012 um, to the extent that, you know, people people almost were expecting now that, oh, cycling, yeah, we always win o- almost all the medals in cycling, you know, <laughs> which people were you, forget we, very quickly.
0: Okay. Yes, we at the Olympics in... 2008 and 2012 I was, I was. it was absolutely and, superb yeah mm. yeah what what were the what were the evenings like there I mean just you and your friends <laughs> and your colleagues uh, I mean it was just yeah, you because know, I mean yeah. we we the public were loving it but you close to it what was that what was it like
1: well if I said it was extremely gratifying, that's kind of a, um, uh, a Lancastrian sort of understatement, if you know what I mean. Uh, okay. It was, was fantastic. It was, it was unbelievable. It, yeah. Was, yeah. It, was it
0: a, yes, we finally got where we expected to, or was it, wow, even we didn't anticipate this, or was it a, I told you so?
1: Well, I, I How think- How do you approach uh, uh, it? W- w- We'd got good results in World Track Championships coming up to um, uh, to Beijing, so we were pretty sure that we'd be in the medals on almost every track event. Road events are a lot more unpredictable because you've got a, a larger number of uh, of competitors in, in in both the men's and the women's. Time trials on well, road time trials are a bit more predictable, but but even so, there's there's a lot more um, room for doubt. Um, But the track events, we were pretty confident going into Beijing that we'd be on the podium in almost every event. But when that turned to on the top of the podium in almost every event, that was like, oh, wow, okay, we're we're doing this now. And I think in sport, once you get on a roll, then everybody then sort of uh, ups the game. You know, it's like uh, the big disappointment in um, in beijing was was for mark cavendish really who who came off the tour de france having won i can't remember whether it's four stages or six that year but he, he he'd broken through in the tour de france he was winning stuff there um in, in the sprints he came to beijing when everybody else had, had had been winning medals on the track rode the madison the two-man relay uh, with bradley wiggins wiggins had already won two gold medals and and Cav thought, well, that's it, I'm going to win my gold medal now. And of course, unfortunately, Bradley was underperforming that day. He was a bit sick and tired, and and Cav was getting more and more annoyed, and uh, that was a big disappointment for him. But that was just about the only um, event that we'd expected to um, to, to medal in that, that we didn't. And, um, and then I think in the next four years, we're going to think, well, that's going to be a tough ass to repeat that in in London, you know. But at least we've got home advantage, and we had the World Championships in in, uh, in March the, that year, so you know the riders were familiar with the velodrome at London, all the rest of it. And um, then that came again, and uh, and Wiggins won the time trial on the road as well, and. Um, and so we won almost as many medals all told as well, and the same in the Paralympics as well. because by that time, uh, the Paras were were well established, m- men and women as well, and and they were doing incredible uh, things as well. So it was just uh, it was just incredibly gratifying. It, it felt it felt wonderful. It felt that we had arrived as a sport that people were taking us seriously. Those of us who are enthusiastic about cycling as a sport have always been enthusiastic and committed, and understood the the beauty and the passion and the colorfulness and the the complexity of the sport. And you know, I think those are great things. I don't think sport should be simple and over in ten seconds necessarily. I think you know, let's. I always. Think the Tour de France is a bit like Test cricket, you know. It takes a bit of understanding what's going on there, you know, and and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, you know. That, that's why it's enjoyable to watch something that lasts uh, several several hours. So yeah, it yeah. felt like a that's, vindication yeah. of everything that we'd done. Yeah, oh, well, it's it, I from
0: outside in front of the telly, it has been wonderful. Um, right. and the you're out on the out. So if you if anyone's out on the streets of Britain throughout the year now just the the increase in popularity in cycling is very apparent from the um very expensively clad mammals the, all the middle-aged yeah, yeah. men in lycra and there's yeah, yeah. loads of speedy fit women zooming around and it's brilliant really brilliant but you you yourself said this um on your website something that's quite apparent and uh, is that I believe the one thing we did not really address was the subject of the whiteness of mm. the sport so mm. I know that your time in in office has gone but what sort of yeah. things would you be looking for people who are within cycling today to be doing
1: to 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 change that yeah that's a really good question and, and you know when i was putting together my my new website um i you know i thought about all of this and i thought well you know i'm going to put down stuff about my achievements and british cycling's achievements but then i thought well you know what did we do that we could have done better and and of course there's lots of things but the and the Black Lives Matter thing, which is very current uh, as we're speaking, um, uh, has caused me to think about this even more. And, you know, I go back in my personal life to when I was a student, you know, um, uh, anti springbok anti-apartheid demonstrations and stuff like that. And, you know, that was my mindset. That was what I was doing uh, back in the 70s and, and so on. And, you know, I don't claim to have been a leading light in any of that or anything. But, but you know, that that's, that's where I was coming from. And... And so it was. It was always something that was in my mind. But then I thought, well, when I look back, I think what we uh, all we did was 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 uh, try try um, not to be negative, not to discriminate, and, and put places uh, put put procedures in in place that that were um, reactive, perhaps, or or. or, or or n- neutral rather than yeah, proactive. Yeah, no, and not, I think, you, you know, know, not not negative. Yeah, yeah. So obviously if someone had said, oh, we don't want any of those black people in our sport or in our team, you know, you, you would have got rid of those people. You would have stopped them, them uh, operating as such. And, and, you know, I can't mm. think of anybody ever actually saying anything like that during my time in, in cycling. But when I look around, I mean, what you say is absolutely right. And, and that's that's one of the reasons why I'd said it as well, that, that that cycling is a very white sport. It is a very middle-class sport. Now, it wasn't when I started. It was a working-class sport. You know, I was brought up on a, a council estate in Lancashire. And, and, you know, that was the sort of thing just in that, what I now recognise as the post-war era, but I never thought of it that way at the time, <laughs> um, was you know it was all about people getting out of the factories, out of the towns, into the countryside, and so on, and that was the ethos that that I came from. Um, but when I look at cycling so now, sorry, sorry, go on. Yeah, what? what no, I was just going to say then. Do you have any
0: I, thoughts then from your experience of how to create a a, a new normal, which of a not just a, a fully class, all the classes cycling but also a much more diverse spectrum of ethnicities as well do you have well, any? I
1: think, yeah, yeah i think we have to do what what we've have what british cycling has tried to do and cycling clubs have tried to do a bit more uh with women. And it's only quite recently that that started to happen as well. So British Cycling's Breeze programs, which started in, in my time, for instance, that are specifically about a point attracting women into sports, setting up uh, clubs, rides, invitation rides, and so on that are, uh, that are welcoming to women, as opposed to, uh, to to unwelcoming. That's the sort of thing that we should be doing for our, um, you know, people who have a non-white background. I, I don't like to use bame or or any of those things because I think they they're all. Kind of like minimising and defining in a way, I think grouping people together. What I think we should be welcoming is the diversity of people from all the backgrounds that are uh, that are now here in in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, and so on. And welcome that, um, welcome the strength of that, and try to be much more proactive and positive in in bringing those those people. Into into our sport, into our pastime, uh, as an early an age as, as possible. And he, you know, even you know, the towns of Lancashire, there's lots of um, uh, Asian minorities. Almost zero in cycling clubs, from from what I can see. And and so it's clear that that just doing nothing and hoping that that will change, uh, because we're nice people, uh, you know, that's not worked, has it? So i think we have to do yeah. something and we have to be proactive about it and you know now's the time to to start thinking about what those things are and to start putting them into practice certainly
0: yeah yeah what has been successful but uh, clearly is not perfect is is um the increase of women in cycling. So, when yeah. is there going to be a women's full length Tour de France? <laughs> well, so what, do you,
1: could, what, do you, do you have what? a prediction? Uh, I think probably never. Uh, really, really. I think, I think that well, astonishes me. I think uh, that if you were inventing cycling today, you probably wouldn't invent a men's Tour de France. Uh, I think. Uh, I think women. I mean, there have been, uh, there was a women's Tour de France a few years ago. I know some of the riders who took part in it. And I think that women, well, the Tour de France in the men's format is a very challenging event physically. That's not to say that women can't do those sorts of things, but can they do them in the way that the men do them and in a way that is, uh, interesting and attractive to a television audience and to sponsors? And is there the strength in depth to allow, you know, teams of eight, nine riders with riders who are specialists in the mountains, riders who are good sprinters and so on? You know, I think we're a long way from that yet. What I do think we can do and should be doing, um, and I'll come back to the commercial side of this in a, in a second, we should be supporting and developing. As I try to do in my time at the UCI, uh, women's events that are suited to the size and capacity of the women's peloton at the moment and that uh, are organized and promoted by enthusiastic organisers uh, who want to do that. And I'm thinking of things like the women's tour over here in in, in the UK. I'm thinking of the, the so-called ladies tour of Norway, which is a great event, uh, the Giro Rosa, where you've got really good organisers and promoters who are wanting to do this and are um, designing the races that are uh, to to suit the size and style and capacity of the women's sport at the moment then those are the events that we should continue to support and try and develop. If you've got an organization, a company, a privately owned company like ASO that organizes and runs the Tour de France, if they don't want to do it, they're never going to do a proper job of doing it. So for me, uh, forget about the Tour de France for the time being, put on uh, your own, you know, grand tours. Call them whatever you want. the The tour of Scandinavia merge uh, merge um, the the tour of Norway for women with the the um, in Sweden and Denmark. Uh, put something on, uh, maybe a bit longer. In the UK, the women's tour there, uh, the Giro Rosa. Those are your three grand tours. Forget the Tour de France. You know, um, they're only start afresh. They're only ever going to do what what suits them at that, that, that people misunderstand that look, ASO, a company that organizes a Tour de France, it's a business. They want to make money out of sport. They want to sustain their sport. And you know, I'm not saying they're bad people, but they will only do something if it makes them money or or is a, a risk that that is going to turn into an investment that does make them money in the future. So if they can't see the benefits in commercial terms in putting on a women's tour de France, they're not they're not going to do it. So I think my view is, and we did this a little bit as much as we could when I was at the UCI. We develop the women's world tour into a program of events that suits the size of the women's peloton at the moment, that suits the capacity, the strength, in depth, and take it step by step. So I think it will be, it will be quite a few years before there is a, a three-week women's tour. And as I say, you know what? If you are inventing cycling today, you probably wouldn't have three-week, 150-mile daily stages in a men's tour. So you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's. That's right for women's sport at the moment, but you know what? I'm an I'm a man, I'm an old man. So what the hell do I know? So ask uh, yeah, okay, some women yeah. what are they I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah,
0: I mean, the world, my the world that I'm in, which is much more adventure and niche events, likes sort of transcontinental bike race, yeah, yeah, race yeah. across America. There's there's the race across Europe. A, a woman won the oh man, what's the race called? They won down the US spine, where it's sort of self-supported bike packing race across um, America. So in terms of no, no, down America, down oh, okay. oh, man, yeah. mind blank, down the down the Pacific Ridge from Canada to Mexico, um, unsupported. You have to carry camping gear and stuff. Um, so there's definitely within my little corner of biking a, a an appetite for uh, hardcore women doing crazy stuff and definitely yeah, kicking yeah, yeah.
1: my butt. So um, yeah. No, yeah, and but I think who, women who, are. Who, so so i think women are really good at those kind of endurance things where it's just as much about keeping going and and you know lack of sleep and, and and all the rest of it and they they are better than those men at, uh, at some of those elements and some of those things the issue yeah. there in terms of professional sport is whether those are things that are uh, attractive enough to the viewer or a spectator to want to watch and to want to pay to watch because professional sport where again, this is one of my little hobby horses. Where does income come from for professional sport? It comes ultimately from us, us punters, us viewers, us spectators. So, in any professional sport, you've got three main sources of income. You've got the ticket sales in the arena, right, the stadium, which you don't really have in cycling, pretty much. You've got the television rights. Well. You don't really have much of that in cycling apart from the Tour de France, and they're not going to share it anytime soon. Um, and the third one is your, your, you know, what they call in football your shirt sponsor, your jersey sponsor, and so on. And that's that's cycling USP because the teams are named after the shirt sponsor there. So that's a strong point. But whether that's, it, that's good enough in terms of a, a television product for someone flogging away hour after hour through the Alps or up and down the Andes or the Rockies or whatever, I think that's a different mindset yeah. and a different type of, of sport, admirable though it is, but is it necessarily um, televisual or, or or consumable in the way that a professional sport has to be to make it financially worthwhile for the people involved involved in it? Do, do you see what I'm getting at?
0: Yeah 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 I do I think that's a, a a yeah a good explanation and a and a valid one as well. Um yeah thank you that yeah that does. What I want to do now is is change tack a bit away from professional cycling to just mm. cycling. People mm. riding bikes because I I spent 4 years living on my bike um but still never considered myself a cyclist. Um, <laughs> for three of the for three of those 4 years I still carried with me a little book of how to fix your bike before mm. I finally trusted myself enough that i could finally fix everything on my bike and shed the vital grams of of uh of my bike repair book but to you then um what does it mean if for someone to call themselves a cyclist
1: well you know that's a really good question and i think you know it's like uh (laughs) if <laughs> someone says you're a cyclist, you say, no, I'm a bike rider. But if someone says you're a bike rider, you say, no, I'm a cyclist. You know, So <laughs> it's a, it's a movable uh, definition, I think, really. So I, I think, look, certainly in the modern era, I think we need to move away from exclusivity of terms and categorization and stuff like that. You know, I When I go out on my bike now, I will wave or nod to anybody who's on a bike, whether it's a drop-handle bike, a mountain bike, even an e-bike, you know, I've, I've I've slackened my standards so much that I'll even wave to people on an e-bike now. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about e-bikes. Are they yeah.
0: lazy and cheating, or are they just a great way of getting more people well, trying the
1: activity? <sighs> As long as they don't try and challenge my times on Strava, I don't mind, uh, you know. <laughs> no, I, to be serious, I think it's a good thing. Uh, it gives people who perhaps haven't got the physical ability to uh, travel any Distance on a bike. It gives them the ability to do that. It gives them the experience of what it's like being on a bike. So when they go back to drive vehicles, then perhaps they'll behave a bit more uh, sensitively around us, as bike riders. And, and I'm both a driver and a, a, a bike rider, of course. Um, and I think it's about getting people out in the countryside, enjoying the experience of uh, uh, of the environment, of nature, and the benefits that that can bring. So you know, I don't knock it. I, mean, um, I, you know, um, it's not for me at the moment. Maybe it will be in another few years. Uh, you know, as physical uh, limits come in, but you know, I'm I. I think as a as a sport, as a pastime, as a hobby, and maybe we're not alone in that we've been too snooty we've been too uh, exclusive about who is uh, a valid cyclist and who isn't and oh mountain bikers don't like roadies and roadies look down their noses at mountain bikers and all this kind of stuff it's just nonsense you know if it's yeah. got wheels a chain and pedals for me then that's fine it's a bike you know go out enjoy it uh, get the most get out into the countryside and you know, it's uh, it's a sport, but it's also a pastime, and what other? What other sports can you go? well, you can't swim to work, uh, unless you yeah. you know you can go in a canoe down a canal or something maybe. But you know you can't. Uh, uh, you don't have to have uh, lycra, carbon fibre bikes, uh, or any of that stuff. You can get out on your old bike. Lots of them have been brought out of the sheds during the recent uh, pandemic and stuff, and you can go out for an hour, half an hour, ride to your local cafe, ride to the pub maybe and have a non-alcoholic drink, uh, I hasten to add. But you know, that's the beauty of cycling. It's it's a sport yeah. and it's a pastime and it's a means of transport and there's not many things that can compete with that.
0: Well, it's a sport, it's a pastime, it's a means of transport and perhaps it's also part of us trying to save our planet, isn't it? So, Absolutely, So, I think yeah. it's an, oh. So in, in a previous life, you were engaged in programmes of urban regeneration and renewal. So how how yeah. then with all of your different hats on can we get cities and towns better for just everyday cycling so how can how can we turn into holland if actually sorry well, if actually me- that is what we want yeah. to turn
1: into well i do think that we can improve the quality of life of everybody living in towns and cities, if more of us ride bikes in towns and cities, I think that's uh, a cultural thing. And it's also about investment. So, um, you know, we mentioned Chris Boardman earlier, and he's been doing a fantastic amount of work, both with British Cycling and as Greater Manchester Cycling Ambassador in working with, um, you know, highway engineers and with the other local authorities in Manchester and looking at how we can invest in the right sort of infrastructure just to make cycling safer, and make people feel more confident that they can uh, ride to work and ride to school on bikes and so on I mean you know I'm of the generation where most kids rode to school on a bike now you go past any school at uh, uh, at the end of the day their mums and dads are waiting for them outside in normally in four by fours with the engines running and all the rest of it and the poor little mites are then worrying about why they're obese and so on well you know I I rode every day to school through rain hail and snow snow and all the rest of it and now it's become um perceived as dangerous and and people on bikes feel that it's uh uncomfortably dangerous because of the way people um drive around cyclists and don't respect other road users so so some of it is about infrastructure investment into making um the right sort of separated lanes and so on and we're seeing that that in in recent months, but some of it also is about um, the attitude of people on the roads and the compassion that they show to to other road users, whether it's other drivers or or people on bikes or or pedestrians. And and you know, we we also <laughs> again this is a, a bit of a silly point, but you know what? In cars and vehicles now, we're surrounded by safety equipment, we're cocooned and from from the outside world, and so. We drive our vehicles in ways that that tend to reflect that. So it's a kind of it's an encouragement to to have that mentality of get out of my way, you people. Go, you know. Actually, people would drive a lot more carefully if instead of airbags, there was a big spike sticking out of the steering wheel pointed <laughs> to their chest. I mean, obviously that's never going to happen, but you know what I mean. It, it's yeah. it, it's a demonstration yeah. that that actually. You know we should be much more careful about how we all drive our vehicles when we are driving and that way there'll be more people on bikes and so it's a combination of all those things but i think key to it yeah. is the investment in infrastructure and it's not an accident that holland is a place where people ride bikes a lot it's not just because it's flat the same in denmark a visit to copenhagen is incredible to where that that vehicles Drive around cyclists, and the result is that that there are hundreds and hundreds more cyclists uh, than there've ever been in Britain. It's starting now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're seeing it in London, and that becomes safe.
0: Yeah, well, London's a good case. Actually, start as more people do it, starts to feel safe. You know, if you've ever ever cycled into Beijing in rush hour, it is a brilliant experience. You just ride the tide of thousands, Uh, it's a mad, mad, wonderful
1: experience. And gradually, London's becoming a bit like that um how many critical mass mass is a key thing and i think the other thing there is someone once said once everybody has somebody in their family who is riding a bike regularly then they will all start to drive more carefully and cautiously around cyclists as well which is a sad bit of human nature but i think true yes yeah how many bikes have you got (laughs) uh let me think uh, I've got uh, uh, that, that's I've got, a good sign yeah, I've got three nice road bikes um, I've got two track bikes for the velodrome and I've got a training bike for winter and I've got an old mountain bike somewhere as well so how many is that about seven is it yeah do you need just one yeah do you need just one more and then you'll be happy uh, I'm happy at that's the moment to the be way. Honest. yeah I've got a nice Pinarello that's my best bike and that's really nice but yeah, yeah yeah okay
0: If you could, because you mentioned various types of cycling there, road, track, a bit of mountain biking, perhaps cycling to the shops, perhaps, if you were only allowed to do one kind of cycling, which would you pick?
1: Oh, I'd have to pick road cycling, I think, because that's Mm -hmm. in my blood. You know, that's what I started doing as a teenager. That's, uh, you know, that's the thing that I've had a a very small amount of success at in racing terms. But, you know, that is my life now. If I can't do, uh, you know, 150, 200 kilometers a week or something like that, then I start to get very naughty and, uh, yeah, and and grow That's a good Lancashire word. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> um,
0: so, um, I, so I, I, um, people often ask me about bike advice. They say things like, oh, I want to go and cycle across a continent. Uh, mm. What bike should I use? And unfortunately, I have no idea because I, I really don't know any of this kind of stuff. So, right. you, you put on your website that you'd love to do some proper long-distance touring when circumstances yeah. allow, maybe all the way down to the med and beyond. So, if you were going to set off to cycle all
1: the way down to the med, and beyond what bike should what bike would you go for well probably not an out and out racing bike to be honest uh, in the sense of a, a you know pro standard racing bike you'd probably want to, uh, well okay if it was me i would try and choose a probably a titanium frame cause it's a bit more forgiving and long lasting. Uh, I'd probably go with mug guides and panniers and, uh, and a more slightly more relaxed uh, position, maybe a steel frame, if not titanium, uh, cause titanium is a little bit more expensive. Um, you know, I was brought up on the old Reynolds five, three, one tubing, you know, we never had anything else really. And it was uh, super good. Um, and uh, probably a bit wider and softer tires than I would have on a, a an out and out road racing bike, but I, you know okay. I think well, I'd probably so- stick with the same sort of position and setup and as much uh, as as expensive as I could uh, could afford in terms of equipment uh, and so on.
0: Well, unfortunately or disappointingly, I understood all of your answers. So, can you tell? Can you give me a few <laughs> things I would not understand? So, tell, give me a give me a bit of group set disc brake type spec for
1: uh, the real right, geeks who listen yeah, to this yeah, okay well i'd probably
0: um, and I, i'll just zone out till you finish speaking
1: i've got uh, electronic uh, gearing on mine. Shimano di2 uh Dura-Ace on my best bikes and i but i don't have electronic gears yeah 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 absolutely yeah so wow. it change it moves your your rear and your front shifters uh, when you tell it to just by a little press on the sides of the brake levers uh up and oh. down yeah, you mean you didn't know such a thing existed? Oh yeah, absolutely. But you'd be no. familiar with oh, um, with Shimano, dear SCI, um, brake levers that change the gear as well when you move them sideways. Yeah, well that's the same yes. principle, but it's just electronic. Uh, I haven't mm-hmm. got disc brakes yet, but I do think that they are much better than than rim brakes. Uh, so I would go with uh, with with disc brakes as well because um, I think I think within a few years you won't be able to buy rim brakes anyway. So. Uh, disc brakes are obviously much more effective so that's the kind of thing i'd go for um and i say i think uh titanium frames are uh for a long lasting permanent investment i would buy a titanium frame and you know you're never gonna have to buy another another bike at all really does that nice. do?
0: thank you which is uh, yeah which is <laughs> like which is ideally what we probably sensibly need in life is to find for most of us most time one bike
1: that does most things really yeah, nicely yeah. isn't it yeah, I think so, and I think yeah. we're seeing now hybrid bikes and, um, you know, uh, off-road gravel bikes, so-called. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> that's just an ordinary bike to my way of thinking, really. And you know, but yes, uh, yes. yeah, it's uh, you only need one bike really, if you're honest about it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> can you
0: can you tell us um, tell people what is uh, the Fred Witten Challenge and your and okay. how you, how you your experience
1: of that. Well, I'm really glad you asked me that, actually, because uh, Fred Witten Challenge is a a ride around most of the hardest and most difficult hills in the Lake District. It's about hundred miles. Uh, it uh, it starts well. I think they usually start near Coniston, uh, but it doesn't really matter where you start on the on the loop. You, I think you can do it actu- away from the actual event itself now, just by checking in at various points as well. So it's uh, well, it's all, a great well, ride. Of course, you can just go and ride it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you can just go and do it. On, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, as you I, can on any of the I had roads, to, w- uh,
0: yeah, yeah, of England. Yeah. I had to walk up yeah. half. Not pass when I did that. Oh uh, yeah, me too. I was too. knackered by the time yeah, I yeah. got there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so it's the loop is, of the late district. Yeah,
1: yeah. Loop of the late district, and, and it and it goes over hard knot rhinos and wind and all, all of those uh, really really uh, difficult times. Nice thing is that I actually knew Fred Whitten, um, who was uh, I uh, I raced against him actually, and. Um, he died uh, sadly a few years ago, uh, a really hardworking local official and a great guy, an ex racer, as I say. And um, a friend of his, I said to him not long ago, Geez, that Fred Witten, right? That song, right? Did Fred used to do that all the time? And he, he said, Well, not really no but he said he, those were the favorite climbs that fred used to do on different rides and they put them all together and made it into a route and called it the fred witten ride and uh, in his honor and that's a great tribute uh, you know i'm uh, i like to think that uh, it might not be for a few years but when i'm gone someone will do that for me i think that's a fantastic thing to have done for a great bike rider and a great bloke
0: yeah, yeah. And, and how did you find the experience of that compared to... Because I know you've cycled uh, Alpe yeah. d'Huez and the Tourmalet and around the Alps. How did you find the experience of cycling around
1: your sort of local-ish hills, really, northern England? Well, you know what? we we When I was racing quite seriously in my younger days... We would do like winter training weekends in the Lake District, and we always used to say that the miles were, were twice as good there as anywhere else because there was always a climb, one climb after another, and there was almost no relaxation. You went down the hill, and then you were at the bottom of the next climb, really steep climb. So, really great, great country, very difficult for um, you know for, for for the climbs and so on. Um, so, I think you know the Lake District is a it's a good place to ride a bike there's some off-road routes as well traffic can be a bit difficult at some times of the year as well in on some routes but yeah if you choose your routes carefully the lakes and uh, uh and north lancashire the forest of Bowland, those are those are great places uh, to ride and that's uh that's what i spend my time doing uh even now and uh yeah long uh, i hope may it continue yeah i hope so too so
0: i i originally came across you brian not through I knew your name from cycling, but I came across you really through Tree of the Day yeah, on yeah. Twitter. <laughs> and yeah. when I saw that, I saw cyclist meets tree lover. I thought, "This is a man I want to invite onto my podcast." Um, yeah, yeah so good. W- When did you start doing Tree of the Day? <laughs> well, you know,
1: you know what? Um, I've always been uh, uh, into trees. Uh, I'm a professional landscape architect. That was my original trade uh, career, um, but. Um, when the lockdown started, um, The Guardian started doing a tree of the week. And then someone, uh, I noticed, uh, said, either oh, online somewhere, oh, Alistair Campbell, is doing a tree of the day. So I nicked the idea off uh, Alistair Campbell, you know, Tony Blair's old um, uh, media guru. And uh, he's still around. And I noticed last week that he's, he's just followed me on Twitter now because somebody told him that I'd, uh, I was doing the same thing. So I just think that it's it's a bit of normality in a very strange time and trees uh, trees have been there they're going to be there when we're not here they're outlivers and we'll continue to do and they're just they're just a, a thing a feature of the environment a feature of our planet that we should learn to love and respect and most of us do i think now but you know you still see people abusing them from time to time and uh, you know, if you can hug a tree or climb them as you do, uh, even better. I think becoming more um, intimate with nature, if if I can use that word, um, is a is a good thing for all of us, isn't it? And uh, you know, I've often said, uh, you know, at times of stress, uh, I remember when I was learning to be um, an international cycling official. We had a course in uh, Colorado Springs in the USA, and uh, I remember saying, "God, I've been." Uh, I've been hugging the trees around here and talking to the trees and uh uh and they all laughed about that and I said but yeah the only thing is look look, it's fine it's it's all right the only time to worry is when the trees start talking back to you and that's when you're in serious trouble you know so uh,
0: yeah
1: Yeah. so I I I
0: imagine most people on twitter have been following you and because of cycling stuff so what what's the normal person's opinion been when you start putting up pictures of your
1: favorite tree each day well do you know what i get more positive feedback on the trees than i do on anything that i ever say about cycling so you know uh i'm very happy about that really so if it yeah. uh, broadens my my fan base <laughs> which i <I'm> laughing at, <laughs> might refer to it as yeah. then uh, yeah no if it, 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 it's fine yeah it's a good thing to do and uh, you know, I think people think that when you hold any sort of official position that you're just boring and dry and a bureaucrat or whatever, you're only focused on uh, on whatever it is that you've been elected or appointed to do. But you know what? There's life uh, after all those things, whether it's politics, sport um, or whatever, you know, and uh, trees have always been a part of my life. We planted the first tree in my garden with my dad when I was about 89, I remember, and uh have you been back uh, to see that? I think it's still there. I think it's still there. We haven't lived in that house. so My family moved out of that house 30 years ago now. So um, I'll have a look uh, next time I go past. But the last time I went past, it was still there. So yeah, and, and much more, uh, much bigger now. So I hope it's still there. Yeah, yeah. Great
0: stuff. Oh, lovely. Well, that that is a lovely point to end on. But I want to finish with one last question, which is what is your favorite tree?
1: Um... Uh, I, I like a nice beech tree. I think I'll, I'll say. I Ooh. think uh, they're quite often nice to climb if you can if you can get some lower limbs on one. But quite often they've had the lower limbs taken off because they're often planted for timber long term, and so they try and cut down the number of, of side branches. But uh, yeah, it's a nice beech tree with uh, you know squirrels can- gathering the nuts and autumn colour and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough to live uh, opposite a few beech trees. We have got a river at the bottom of our garden, the River Calder, and we've got the uh, Wally Abbey grounds on the other side, and there's some nice beech trees, which I look at all year round uh, across the the river. Uh, So, yeah, I'll go with the Fagus (laughs) sylvatica (laughs) beech. Lovely. Well, I think to begin a
0: conversation with Lance Armstrong, but end it with thinking about beech trees seems like a sign of hope for the world. So thank you very much, Brian. I've I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Me too. hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.